This is Global Mining News, available worldwide on the internet. Welcome to the Northern Miner Podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli, and we have just completed the Canadian Mining Symposium, and it's starting to feel like summer. I think everybody at the organization is taking just a tiny bit of a breather after that really... Well, I don't want to be too self-congratulatory here, but I thought we did a great job. I didn't have much to do with it. I did an interview. I did some social media. I talked to you guys about it. So let me actually extend the congratulations, and we can do it for real this time, to the people who put this on. And I think we can single out Laura Daly and Anthony Vaccaro and maybe Mulladen, but there are too many to mention. So everybody put their hat in the ring on this one. Great work. It was the first Zoom conference I'd ever been a part of. I don't want to say my expectations were low. I mean, I just figured it was going to be a video conference. But I have to say, the experience of watching a conference online in some ways is better than being there in person. Now, both have their pluses and their minuses, but I have to say... There was a strange, I don't know, shall we say resilience to the Zoom conference. And it was three days, but, you know, I just put it on. You know, maybe I'd make lunch and, you know, maybe I'd even go for a bike ride and come back. And there I, it was still going and I'd just turn it back on and check in whenever I wanted. It was beautiful. You know, it was beautiful. And they did a really good job on the social media, I thought, as well. Lauren Maladin, so very, very impressive And so now I think we can give a real congratulations to the staff. So good work, guys, from your host at the Northern Miner Podcast. And I hope you were able to make it. If not, uh, we're going to drip out a lot of the interviews. We had some pretty significant players in the mining industry. Today, we're going to feature the first keynote interview, a fireside chat with Vice Chair and Chief Executive Officer Sean Boyd. And he is interviewed by Northern Miner Group publisher Anthony Vaccaro. And we're going to feature part one of that because it was actually a 45-minute interview. So a bit of a summer Canadian Mining Symposium podcast series, unless, of course, we get some very interesting news that comes out and we need to break from that. But otherwise, lots to look forward to. And I also did an interview with Gord Stothard from I Am Gold, and I can confirm it is pronounced I am gold, and I got the full story on that, and it's it's more than you might expect. Let's just put it that way. So we may have that in a couple of weeks. So something to look forward to. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. If you want to find us on Twitter, you can find us at Northern Miner, and you can find us on Instagram at The Northern Miner. You can find us on YouTube, where we also host these podcasts, and you can find us on Spotify. Find us on LinkedIn and wherever podcasts are available. And with that, let's turn to Adrian Dance, who is Principal Metallurgist at SRK Consulting. And we're going to have four mining minutes with Adrian Dance. So this is the beginning of a new series with SRK. So with that, let's turn to Adrian Dance. Joining me now is Adrian Dance, who is Principal Consultant in Metallurgy for SRK Consulting. And Adrian, welcome to the program. Thank you very Tell much, me. Adrian. Good to be here. 
And tell me, what is metallurgy? Well, for those who haven't been exposed to it, metallurgy or mineral processing is the stage where the ore from the mine is turned into a saleable product. It could be a concentrate or it could be gold bullion or it could be a, a, a product ready for chemical refinement. But it's essentially making a saleable product uh, free of contaminants and valuable enough to be sold to a downstream smelter or refiner. Okay, so as a, a mineral processor or a metallurgist, your focus is really on how to improve grade? Well, that's certainly one of the challenges we're facing. We have to take material, you know, use copper, for example. That's something people are comfortable with. You know, the ore typically is 0.3% copper. It could be even less. 0.3% of all the material under the plant is actually copper. And we need to turn that into at least 20% copper in concentrate to be sellable. So that's how much we need to upgrade. And the, the bigger the jump between 0.3 and 20, the more difficult it is to, to get the recovery. If the grade was higher, say 1% copper or even a half percent copper, that jump is a lot smaller and it's much easier and therefore the recovery is uh, higher. That's fascinating. Okay, thank you very much, Adrian Dance uh, with SRK Consulting, and we will see you next week. And that was Adrian Dance, as we said, SRK Consulting. You can find them at srk.com. And I will also have a link to Mr. Dance's LinkedIn page. And I also will have a link to Adrian Dance's profile page on SRK so you can read more in depth. And with that, Let's turn to the news. And turning to the news, we have a story on Glencore in the Congo, and they've been hit by another probe by the Swiss authorities. This is by Cecilia Jamasmi of Mining.com. Mining and commodities trader Glencore is facing a criminal investigation in its home country, so that's Switzerland, for failing to have organized measures in place to prevent alleged corruption in the Democratic Republic of Congo. The probe by the Swiss Attorney General announced after market close on June 19th adds to the list of multiple but separate alleged corruption and bribery investigations targeting the miner. The Swiss Federal Prosecutor's Office said the move was the result of a wide-ranging investigation by law enforcement agencies opened in May. They are looking into the activities of commodity traders based in the country, and Glencore is the first company to be specifically targeted as a result of the process. Interesting for Switzerland. I mean, they have that reputation for this kind of what I want to call black box banking. I mean, you don't know what goes on in there. The absolute privacy, uh, but that seems to be changing a little bit. Maybe there's just a little too much pressure because too many people are taking advantage of that. Who knows? Uh, Glencore issued a statement and said it was aware of the criminal investigation and that it, quote, will cooperate. The Swiss probe is likely to increase pressure on CEO Ivan Glazenberg. He told investors in February to prepare for more leadership changes and hinted that his own departure may come sooner than previously anticipated. Sounds like a hot seat if there ever was one. Uh, a month later, Glencore said it had found certain facts that, quote, may be relevant to the probes it's facing, adding that it had shared them with regulators. Now, this Commentary I found a little bit, gosh, I don't know if cynical is the word. It's probably just realistic. BMO Metals and Mining Analyst Edward Sterk 
believes the Swiss probe does not change Glencore's reputational risk profile. <laughs> Quote, In our opinion, it just increases the potential fine in the event Glencore is found guilty, he said in a research note to investors. I guess if you already have a bunch of lawsuits, another one added to the mix does not really hurt you that much. Sterk said the additional financial risk was, quote, relatively low compared to fines handed out by the U.S. Justice Department and the U.K.'s serious fraud office to other companies. More ongoing investigations in the U.K., the U.S., and Brazil have scared investors and shaken the company over the past two years. The DOJ launched its investigations into Glencore's activity in Congo, Nigeria, and Venezuela in July 2018. The CFTC initiated a probe in April 2019, looking at whether Glencore had fallen foul of certain provisions of the Commodity Exchange Act and engaged in, quote, corrupt practices in connection with commodities. At the end of 2019, the SFO opened its own bribery probe into the mining company and some of its executives, as well as employees and agents. Glencore is a leading miner and the biggest Western company operating in DRC, Africa's largest copper producer and the source of more than half the world's cobalt. Yeah, it looks like Rio Tinto. The, let's just continue. I, I was about to stop, but then I saw Rio Tinto, the infamous Rio Tinto, who just blew up the 46,000-year-old archaeological site. The firm is just one of the few top resource companies facing probes into possible corruption and bribery. Rio Tinto is also under investigation by the DOJ and the SFO over a questionable $10.5 million payment it made to a French consultant. That person allegedly helped the company win the rights to the giant Simandu iron ore deposit in Guinea. So the plot thickens with Rio Tinto and Glencore. Yeah, these are big, big companies. And so file that one, just take note of that one. And this caught my eye, uh, Rio Tinto back in the news, Dominion Diamond sues partner in Diavik Mine, and that partner is Rio Tinto. And it just raises more questions. I mean, this is a company that can't stay out of the news for bad reasons. This is also Cecilia Jamasmi at Mining.com. Dominion Diamond Mines is suing DDMI, its associate in the iconic Diavik Mine, and a subsidiary of Rio Tinto for alleged breach of contract and acting against the best interests of the partnership. The lawsuit filed on Tuesday in the Supreme Court of British Columbia, Canada, uh, so about a week ago. See, this was written on June 17th. So a week ago, Diavik filed a lawsuit with the Supreme Court of British Columbia, alleging that Diavik Diamond Mines, which owns 60% of Diavik, has operated the mine in a manner that shows, quote, Willful misconduct and gross negligence. So Dominion Diamond Mines is accusing basically Rio Tinto through its subsidiary that they are doing willful misconduct and gross negligence. Quote, Rio Tinto's subsidiary runs the Canadian Arctic Diamond Mine, but takes the regular payments from Dominion to cover the corresponding 40% share of the costs. The partners then divvy up the diamonds produced at Diavik and sell them separately. And we have a quote from the suit. DDMI has continued to maintain full operations at the Diavik mine without taking into account the disruptions of the diamond is industry caused by COVID-19 and in particular without taking into account Dominion's circumstances. DDMI has done so knowing that Dominion has no ability to pay for such cash calls because it cannot materially monetize diamond inventories to pay for them, it notes. 
A spokesperson for Rio Tinto told Mining.com the company would be, quote, vigorously, end quote, defending Dominion's, quote, baseless claims, end quote, in court. We have another quote here. We regret Dominion filing what are baseless claims against us, the source said. We remain focused on managing the mine safely, just as we continue to protect Diavik's interests in Dominion's insolvency proceedings and the jobs of more than 1,120 people who work at Diavik. The two companies are already tangled up in separate legal proceedings relating to Dominion filing for creditor protection in April. Continuing on, uh, Robert Friedland has just been brought on board of a company called GoldX. This is Jackson Chen, Mining.com. GoldX Mining announced today that Ivanhoe Mines founder Robert Friedland has joined the company's board as non-executive chairman. Current chairman and chief executive officer Paul Matisek will remain on board and continue to serve as CEO. So Robert Friedland, of course, is the huge name, and we had a big speech by him in a few episodes ago that he gave at PDAC, and it was quite interesting. I believe he called it Revenge of the Miners, and he opened a Star Wars fanfare music, so that was quite the speech. So continuing on. So we had a a quote from Friedland in a press release, quote, Paul and I had the pleasure to work together very successfully at Potash One, where I was the chairman and which we sold in a friendly transaction for $434 million cash in 2011. Paul's team is now developing an important gold project in Guyana, a beautiful country of which I am very fond and with which I have had a long experience. And... Here is probably the heart of the matter. Goldex has also entered into an agreement with Ivanhoe Capital, a venture capital firm founded by Friedland, under which Ivanhoe Capital will be paid a finder's fee should Goldex successfully complete a financing or business combination transaction with a company introduced to it by Friedland. So, yeah, I guess Friedland is helping them raise money. And putting his name on it, I'm sure, helps in that regard. But he wants a cut, or at least his company does. Gold X is developing the Toro Paru gold project in the upper Purini River region of western Guyana. So far, the company has spent more than $150 million on the project to both classify 7.35 million ounces measured in indicated resources and 3.15 million ounces inferred resources. Goldex's stock jumped nearly 17% to a three-year high of $3.48 following the new appointment. So, a little bit of news from Robert Friedland and Goldex. Continuing on, we're also going to touch on the story where India is going to end its decades-old monopoly on coal. This is uh, just kind of an interesting story. Uh, First of all, that they had a monopoly on coal, and second of all, that they're ending it now. And it says here, India has taken a historic step towards ending the state monopoly on mining and selling coal by auctioning 41 mines in the country, a move that allows private companies to enter the sector. That's a lot of coal mines. The announcement, which puts an end to more than four decades of state control over the coal industry, aims to solve a fuel shortage that threatens to reduce the nation's industrial activity. The measure also seeks to boost India's economy to help it recover from the toll of the coronavirus pandemic. The Ministry of Coal estimates the mines would generate 330 billion rupees, which is about $4.3 billion, of capital investment over the next five to seven years, boosting the nation's output by as much as 225 million tons per year. The authorities also expect the operations to provide thousands of jobs 
about 70,000 direct positions, and earned state's extra annual revenue of $2.6 billion. Technical bids open even to companies with no mining experience are due in August. This kind of sounds like a disaster waiting to happen, doesn't it? After that, the government will begin auctioning the earmarked assets. Such a process will require bidders to propose a portion of revenue they're willing to share with the government. And it says, finally, India is the world's third largest producer of coal behind China and the United States, yet it has heavily relied on imports because of mismanagement and an onerous bureaucracy in coal exploration, production, and power generation. As a result, nearly a quarter of India's 1.38 billion people have no electricity, according to the World Bank. So I want to call it a seismic move out of India from the government there. Let us turn. This is a topic that the guys at Barrick really like to bring up, which is gold production levels, and especially Mark Bristow. He always brings this up. And the article is called Gold Miners Will Struggle to Maintain 2019 Production Levels, according to Wood Mac. And prior to the coronavirus outbreak, peak gold supply was becoming a real possibility. Now, with exploration programs halted or canceled and project disruptions hampering production, the summit is in sight, according to research firm Wood Mackenzie's latest report. As organic growth is waning, miners are looking to buy gold through mergers and acquisitions to secure their future. So far, this has failed to significantly increase production. To avoid a perpetual decline in the gold supply, the industry must see a rise in project development, the research and consulting company says. Wood Mackenzie estimates the industry will need to commission 8 million ounces of projects by 2025 to maintain 2019 production levels. This equates to roughly 44 projects, Wood Mackenzie calculates. Based on the average project capital intensity, Wood Mackenzie estimates the industry must invest approximately $37 billion on greenfield projects and restarts over the next five years. And we have a quote from Rory Townsend, Wood Mackenzie's head of gold research. If all our probable projects were to come back online before 2025, this would almost meet the requirement to maintain 2019 production levels. The likelihood, however, is that we would see some degree of slippage among a number of these assets due to permitting delays, prioritization of other capital projects, and changes in scope. Social and governance considerations are dissuading the exploration of certain jurisdictions and the progression of identified deposits. And finally, we have just another last quote from Rory Townsend, Wood McKinsey, quote, investment and exploration in countries such as South Africa have all but dried up. With the gold mining industry plagued by power outages, labor strikes, and regulatory uncertainty, this has prompted investors and miners to consider countries they deem to be more mining friendly. Isn't that interesting? So yeah, so it looks like there is going to be a bit of a challenge to maintain gold production levels. And this is something that Mark Bristow at Barrick has been saying. He's been kind of beating the drum on this one. And so... With that, let's turn to metal prices and see what's going on there. And turning to metal prices, we'd like to thank our friends at infomine.com and if you ever want to find these prices for yourself just put an infomine and metal prices into google and it will be 
the first result that appears. And on June 23rd, gold is at $1,756.84 per ounce. That is $27 higher than last week's quote. You know, gold was even higher yesterday. I saw it at 1770, so it's pulled back a bit, but gold looking strong. Silver is $17.86 per ounce. That is 44 cents higher than last week's quote. Platinum is $832.64, which is $11 higher than last week's quote. Palladium, always interesting to see considering where it was six months ago, is $1,930.31. That is $28 lower than last week's quote. And turning to our industrial metals on June 19th, copper is at $2.65 per pound. That is three cents higher. Aluminum is at 72 cents per pound, a penny higher. Lead is two cents higher at 81 cents per pound. Nickel is five cents higher at $5.83 per pound. Tin is 15 cents lower at $7.65 after a nice run-up. Still looking strong, though. If you look at all the previous numbers, you know, you have to go back four or five months before it's at $7.65. So tin is still looking strong. Cobalt is down uh, $0.27 cents at $13.09 per pound. And zinc is at $0.94, cents, $0.04 cents higher than last week's quote. The metals seem to be following the stock market this time around, or maybe it's the other way around. But like the stock market, metals are up. Another 2% here, another 3% there. And before you know it, things are looking almost back to normal. As far as the prices are concerned, let's see if it sticks. Coming up, we have our first part of our feature interview, keynote speech by Sean Boyd, vice chair and CEO of Agnico Eagle Mines. And this took place at the Canadian Mining Symposium just last week, and in this part, Sean Boyd talks about the coronavirus, how miners can give back to the community, and the importance of jurisdiction and Agnico Eagle's approach to all of these things. So I hope you enjoy it. Part two will be coming next week, and we will see you on the other side. Thank you again, Sean. Let's jump right into it. It's uh, wonderful to have you here. This is such a fascinating, complex time for you, for your company, for your team. Agnico had seven of its eight mines either suspended or reduced to minimum capacity. I mean, talk about managing complexity. In your long tenure at the company, would you describe this as your most challenging time? I think it has been the most challenging time. And I think as you mentioned, it was due to the complexity and the speed at which decisions were being made and the information set was changing. And then when you layer on that a lot of these issues were really related to people, you know, that just uh, increased the intensity of the challenges. But I think for us, it was, we had all worked together for many years. Uh, we'd been through a lot together. So we had a lot of trust in our abilities and confidence in each other that we'd be able to work our way through it. And for our viewers, so if I have it right, so Kitala in Finland, which I was 
privilege to go visit back in my reporter days. Fantastic mine. So that continued, correct? That was the one of the eight that continued and the other seven in North America were the ones that were suspended or reduced? That's correct. Uh, not only did Kitala uh, keep the plant running, uh, they also had a record month in April in terms of underground tonnage and they uh, beat that in May. So even through this, they've been setting production records while they continue to produce gold. Oh, fantastic news on that front. And how does, for the second half of the year, how does Agnico's production profile look? How are things shaping up now? Well, we really positioned uh, the second half was going to be the strongest part of the year. And the importance as we worked through the last three months and we're dealing with the challenges of the virus was certainly, number one, protect the people, keep their families comfortable with the approach we were taking to protect them, but as, we, as you mentioned, we were reduced activity at seven of eight mines. But those individuals that were at the sites were focused on ensuring the assets were properly positioned for the second half. So we're looking for production levels similar to Q4 of last year, which was a record, not just in terms of production, but also in cash generated from the assets. So coming back to this idea of the, the complexity you've mentioned now, sometimes out of that, executives are, you know, you're forced to think of things from different dimensions and to come up with new solutions to deal with uh, greater level of complexity. Was there any unexpected positive ideas or moments that came out of this COVID situation that maybe would resonate with other companies or other leaders that, are, that have been managing this, this situation? That's a good question. I think for us, it was really to slow things down because things were moving so quickly. But we saw it as an opportunity. We knew this, we would get through this. It's a long-term business. The gold stays there. It just waits to be extracted. Uh, there was never a question the business was going to come back and come back strongly. So it was a matter of taking this situation, as we said, look after the people, but also look at it as an opportunity to really contribute to our communities because uh, the governments were struggling. Uh, there was a lot of uncertainty. We're in parts of the world where we have more capacity than governments in terms of logistics and doing things in the community. So we had a goal to really make a, a contribution there. But I think the one specific that our team did extremely well, and it was their foresight and vision, they employed testing for the virus before many other industries uh, employed it. We got involved very early on on a pilot project in Nunavut, tested all of our Nunavut employees in Finland, we also got involved with a project with the government. We were able to test all our employees in, in Finland. So we just were able to uh, layer on that extra uh, level of protection and comfort level for the workers as they return to work. Uh, so I think that was important. You know, you got to rely on yourselves. The governments are there. They're busy. Um, but take, it, take care of your employees. And uh, our people really did that in terms of embracing testing very early on. And now we're expanding it because we were on it so early. And we're going to bring that now to Quebec uh, for our operations there. Oh, that's fantastic. That's the, exactly the sort of initiative that I was, uh, was hoping you'd be able to share with us. How have you found even just getting uh, a handle on some of those testing kits? I guess expanding to Quebec now, there's, there's sufficient supply that you're able to do that? Well, it started out where it's mobile testing. Uh, done through a professor at the University of Laval, and he's done a lot of work in Africa, and we were able to connect with him because being uh, based here in Canada, he felt, how do I use my expertise dealing with the virus and, and use it in Canada? And it was perfect to do that in Nunavut. 
I think as we all know, the communities there are at high risk. Nunavut's the only place in Canada without a case of COVID-19. We isolated our operations from the communities. We sent our Inuit-based workforce home. Uh, We wanted to make sure that we could continue to operate, not only keep the employees safe, but keep the communities safe. And it's a quick test. So what we're going to do is set up a mobile lab in Valdor as our employees uh, start the process of getting to Nunavut in Montreal, take samples of all those employees boarding the plane in Montreal, that plane lands in Valdor. We'll have samples already taken from those employees in Valdor. Those samples from the Montreal and Valdor based employees will be tested by the time they land in Nunavut, we should have the vast majority of the results. And assuming they're all negative, Uh, the employees could embark on their rotation knowing that they're virus-free. That kind of segues nicely into the next area I'd like to to get into, as much as it really speaks to Agnico's commitment to its staff and also the community and the social side of things. Before we came into COVID-19, definitely ESG was what we were all talking about in the industry. And it's not that we've stopped talking about it. It's that COVID became much more of a a real... um, issue for everybody. But ESG is not going anywhere. We all know that. So from where you sit, I guess first I'd like to get your viewpoint uh, a little bit. You're you're a statesman of the mining industry as well. You have a lot of experience here. Within that ESG framework, let's break out those three letters, environment, social, and government. Where do you think the mining industry has been strong, maybe stronger than outside observers would give it credit for? Where has it been a little bit weaker? And then maybe we'll tie that into the agnico context from there. Yeah, I think the mining industry needs to do a better job overall of articulating uh, the positive benefits of mining. Um, we're actually really good environmentally. You know, we live with that every day, given the type of industry we're in. And we don't talk about a lot of the good things that are done. All we really see are the bad things that happen occasionally in the industry, which can be a problem. So I think we actually do very well there. We can always do better. We actually do very well. On the governance side, I think we actually do well as, as, as well. But on governance, we look at that as more of an academic discussion. Certainly one size doesn't fit all. There's so many different ways to cut it from a governance perspective. If you're a large public company, you have to have the G right. Um, but basically G in our view comes down to Um, results. What are your results? What are your returns? What are you doing for your employees? What are you doing for your communities? The S is the key for us in the ESG, and that's where you can really shine. And that's what we said when this virus started. As we come through this, we want to shine from a social perspective. Uh, We want to contribute to the communities. And as you know, we started a social media advocacy campaign last year called We Make Mining Work and that was designed to you know, stand up and step up as people that have been in this business for over six decades and say, you know what, mining actually makes a positive contribution. And here's some of the things that are being done on the social side that people are not aware of, we don't get credit for. And it was a little bit difficult for Agnico because we tend to be low key, we just go about running a good business, uh, but we said now's the time to step up. And during this last three months, Our teams have done a tremendous job on the ground. For example, in Nunavut, 
uh, were involved in a, a food program providing food baskets for 450 families. We're doing the same thing in northern Mexico around our Mexican mines. Uh, in Mexico, we're providing uh, medical uh, capabilities. We have much more sophisticated medical capacity than most of the communities around us. Um, so these are the things that uh, we do in the normal course and we've been doing for a long time and now we felt it was time to talk more about it. Let's go a little bit, let's push down a bit on the, on the Nunavut platform. You obviously have two really key assets in Nunavut with Meliadine and Meadowbank. You've also been a very strong voice on mining being a force behind nation building in North America. I think you've given some speeches at Canada Club in Toronto and Ottawa. This is something I, I pick up from you. It's very dear to your heart and it's a, a passion of yours. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? What is your thinking around nation building in North and Canada? How is that being done? What steps have already been taken? What steps need to be taken? Who needs to be part of that story? Well, if you, you sort of look at the last 100 plus years of Canada's history, a lot of the success was based on responsible resource development. And here we are uh, with a vastness in the north and with tremendous resource development potential and a, a local population that wants to engage in responsible resource development to improve their opportunities. Uh, to create wealth. And as you know, in Nunavut in particular, um, Nunavut and the residents of Nunavut own 18% of the landmass of Nunavut directly. So essentially that was selected based on its geological potential. So the people of Nunavut are in the resource development business. So we have this opportunity. Uh, what does it lack? It lacks infrastructure. It lacks money for training. Um, uh, communications, uh, clean energy technology. So I think as a country, we need to have a discussion about the opportunity. And not to say that the economy needs to be 100% based on resource development, uh, but resource development can help kickstart the economy, uh, investment, and the development of the North in a responsible way. And we think that should be done by Canadian companies run by Canadians based in Canada because we have that understanding of history and um, we have that uh, sense of pride in the country and the willingness to take advantage of the opportunity and see the people benefit that live there in that opportunity. That seems to be a segue into TMAC. Do you want to offer any opinion on the TMAC transaction? We have to be careful because there's a <laughs> transaction in the market. And um, I would say that the government has to make a decision uh, based on what they see in front of them in terms of the current proposal, and they will make that decision. And I think whatever that decision is, um, if the decision is that the government decides that that project is not in the best interests of the country, it doesn't mean, you know, based on what we know about Nunavut, that that project is dead it means that it has to be rethought. So we'll leave it up to the government uh, to do. We've got certainly enough on our plate. We certainly know our way around Nunavut. Uh, we certainly have unique expertise. Uh, we're gonna be in Nunavut for a long time. Uh, we can't do everything. So we'll just leave it to the government and to the Inuit associations to decide if that's the type of structure uh, they're comfortable with. And I'll leave it at that. 
Is there fair enough? And thank you. Thank you for that. Is there something in your corporate ethos or maybe just some practical planning or steps that you took that allowed Ignico to have the success that it's had in none of it? We all know the operating costs are higher the further north you go. We all know many companies are not able to succeed in further reaches the further that you go out. Agnico has succeeded and has two producing moms there. Can you share with the audience any secrets to your success there? Was there anything you can point to that, that helped drive that? You've been there a long time. Yeah, I, I think for us it's that I think we understand our role. Uh, I think that's important. Uh, we're visitors. We're visitors on someone else's land. We bring expertise. We bring capital, which means we have to work hard at a partnership and uh, that's the only way you're going to be successful. Like the people of Nunavut, we think long-term as a company, and uh, I think there's a good match in terms of, of that type of thinking. What you, that's what you need there. You need patience. There's been many examples of companies coming in. Uh, they'll stay for a few years. As soon as things start to get a little bit rough, uh, they pack it in. Uh, that's not Agnico style. That's not the way we've built a business over six decades. We're fairly resilient. Um, and we think long-term. And so I think the idea that we're visitors, the idea that we see a lot of value, uh, but we know that we need to be patient um, to see that value realized, and we know that we have to build strong partnerships, I think that's the formula that's uh, been successful for us and will create conditions that we can continue to be successful there. Very good. Unless we have any, we did uh, reach out to generalist investors as well. I think mining investors are at this point very familiar with the Agnico story, but unless in case we have new investors here uh, that aren't, we don't want to leave the impression that we've only mentioned Finland and none of it, but of course, Agnico has very strong assets in Quebec and in Mexico. Jurisdictional risk, that segues for me into jurisdictional risk. I think it's maybe one of the biggest issues in the industry today. It seems in many ways that we've come full circle. In the last bull run, that I'm old enough to remember, um, we saw very f- projects far flung throughout the globe, very remote regions in the developing world. And they were actually at one point getting higher valuations in some cases. Now that's come full circle. The preference is now for projects mainly in North America, Australia, Australian projects, Europe, places where there's more security around the, the rule of law and government stability. Now, it can be said that Agnico was ahead of the game on this. You have your assets stationed in politically stable jurisdictions. Take us through your thinking around jurisdictional risk. Has it changed over the years? Where did your strategic view come from on this, and how has it guided your growth strategy? It's really about risk. It's, we just view our business. There's a risk spectrum. There's a lot of risks in the mining business. Mining's tough enough. When you start layering on other risks, including jurisdictional risk, it can make things extremely difficult. And you mentioned generalist investors, investors that don't necessarily have uh, the knowledge of the detail that's involved in mining. Uh, They look at investments from a risk-reward perspective. So what we've tried to do uh, since day one is keep our story simple, give investors a high-quality way to get leverage in gold, and part of that is keeping the risk down. Uh, So we built the company very carefully, uh, step-by-step, making small measured bets on a relative basis on geology and geologic potential. And we've tended to take those bets on geology in countries that we were comfortable that we could build a business over multi-decades. We can't be everywhere in the world. We don't want to be everywhere in the world. 
but those regions we choose to go to, we need to understand that we can build beyond a single opportunity and think multi-decade. And that's been the basis of our success in Quebec. Um, and we've built businesses in other parts of the world. So it's by design. And when we do go into a new area, uh, we're very cautious and careful. Before we went into Mexico, we were running around there for, or I'd say walking around there for about five years, just getting a feel. Finland was the same way. We took small investments in opportunities just to understand uh, what the potential was, but also what the risks were. So we'll continue to do that. We don't look uh, as we look forward to open up or create a lot of risk on the jurisdictional side, uh, we think we can continue to build a strong business and stay relatively close to home. Let's, I touched upon uh, what was going on in the last bull run in terms of taking on more political risk. But there was other things that went on during the last bull run. It seems now it's a fitting time now that we seem to be in the early stages of another bull market in the gold sector. Let's all hope that we are. Do you think that there were important lessons learned in the last bull run? And if so, what were some of those key lessons that we're looking at the, the gold sector specifically on, on, this, on this front? Number one question we get and the number one theme in all the investor meetings, will it be different this time? How can I be sure that that margin that I expect to see as gold prices go higher will be captured by the companies and some of it returned to me as an owner. Uh, two fundamental differences between now and let's say 12 years ago when we were on that last bull run, which bode well for the next three to five years. Number one, we're not seeing anywhere near the input price pressures we were experiencing as an industry back in 2008. Remember, Oil was booming, base metals were booming, gold was booming, big projects were being built. We would see price increases of 20 to 30% four or five months after we had negotiated a contract for the following year. Not seeing anything near that. So that was an issue and a problem at that time. But the other thing that's fundamental and most people forget, not focused on it, is we had a period back 2004, 2005 to 2008 where gold went up three times from sub 400 to 1,000, 1,200. What you had over that short period of time is you had a massive dilution in the underlying quality of the mine plans supporting the future of those businesses at the time because the gold price assumption jumped from 350 generally, most companies were using in reserves, to 800, 900, 1,000. 1100, 1200. And what the companies didn't realize by doing that, all the reserves were growing, it was much tougher for the operators to meet ounce targets, but more importantly, to maintain unit costs. We don't have that now. Mm -hmm. The foundation of the business for the next five to 10 years has been done roughly at $1,200 gold. And I don't think that's going to change dramatically over the next two to three years. So the mine plans underpinning the businesses for the next five to 10 years are solid. The third part of all this is, will the companies remain disciplined in terms of capital allocation, how they spend the cash, M&A? I think most companies will. Some will get off track a bit because some need growth and some may fall into that trap where they feel they have to reach or stretch. But I think on balance, 
the industry is much better positioned today than it was a dozen years or so ago. just a clarity to Sean Boyd's thinking. It's deceptively simple the way he answers those questions. Uh, He's a very, very interesting, thoughtful man. And so, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that. Uh, We're going to have the next one next week, and then we're probably going to follow it up with uh, my interview with I Am Gold's Gord Stothart. You can learn all about the origin of I Am Gold's name my first and most burning question that I had to ask. Want to help us out? You can leave a review in the Apple Podcast directory and you can email it to your friends and share it with everyone that you know that might be interested in this, mining people and students alike. Until next week, take care.